Let's do this. Can you guys help me? We'll clap in just a second and welcome everybody at our outdoor venue right there. Okay, one, two, three. Welcome everybody in the outdoor venue. Welcome to everybody online, on YouTube, on the podcast, on Instagram, or however else you found this. If you're driving or riding or it's not morning where you are as you listen, that's okay. We love you. We see you. We're glad you're here. My mother-in-law is here. She writes all my sermons most of the time. And so anything you've ever heard come from me, it's because we had this conference call every Monday. And I say, hey, what should I tell him this week? And so I'm just happy to have her here. I am her favorite son-in-law. And there is two of us and I'm the favorite one. So that is important to establish as well as we get going. Uh, We've welcomed everybody. We've talked about all this stuff. We are in the final week of investigating Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you have a Bible, if you like to follow along, if you have a phone, a U version, whatever you're flipping on, uh, in a minute we will be in Luke chapter 23. So if you want to read Luke 23, make sure I'm not making this up. You can meet me there. We'll get there later. I'll tell you this. This is one thing I know for sure. Last words are a big deal. Some of you know my story of how I grew close to my grandmother as a young man at about the age of 12. They hired me out to start doing all of her yard work. And so once or twice a week, I would mow my grandmother's lawn and then we'd spend the day together. And she would give me a 20 and tell me to go down to the steak and shake and pick her up a burger and fries extra crispy. She would actually send me back to the steak and shake if the fries weren't crispy enough. This is my grandmother, Geneva. She's no longer with us, but we had some great memories. And if you know the story, I I tell this a lot because she's a significant person in my life, but her end of life was a slow process that stretched over the course of about four years and it began when she fell one day in her garage and then it was hospitals and nursing homes and a slow decline after that and so I I told it actually just a few weeks ago she would play piano she was a gifted musician her whole life and it turned out I think by God's goodness and sovereignty that there was uh, a piano in the nursing home where she would end up spending her last days and so there was this little rec center and we never had to go looking for my grandmother because she would be in there with a bunch of other residents surrounding her. They'd all roll up in their chairs and she would just take requests and play the hits all day. It was beautiful. And so as her life was dwindling down, Britt and I would make the drive from New Albany, Indiana over to Normal, Illinois, where she would be. And it was about a four hour drive and we would go. And before we'd even stop at my house on the way into town, we would go to the nursing home where we could see my grandmother and we would spend time there. And, and we never had to go looking for her. We'd park in the little uh, parking lot on Main Street and say hi to the ladies at the gate. And they, we'd say Geneva and they'd say, yeah, we know Geneva, you know where she is. And we would go down the little hallway hang a right and see my grandmother there just playing tunes for all the other residents on her piano. And as we would come around that corner, I can still see her face light up when she would see Britt and I come to visit her and she would stop everything. And she insisted on standing up out of that wheelchair and it would take a moment and she would stand up and she would see us and She would gather the attention of the crowd and she'd say, everybody, everybody stop. Everyone stop. This is my grandson and he's a pastor. And she would just paint the room with unconditional love. And she'd go, and this, this is his wife, 
It was so embarrassing at the time, but I would give anything to go back and live that one more time. And she would paint at, point at Britt and she'd go, and this is his wife, Brittany. And she's a nurse and she would be so proud of us. And I tell you, it didn't matter who we are or what we did. We could have walked in there and we'd be like, Grandma, we need to lie low. We just knocked over a liquor store, took all the money from it. I had to shoot somebody on the way out. She'd be like, this is my grandson. And he just robbed a liquor store. There was nothing we could say or do to upset this beautiful older woman and she would just love us in those words this is my grandson and he's a pastor are some of her last words and they mean so much to me I don't have to tell you that last words matter maybe you have your own story of a loved one that is no longer with you and you remember those things with them and the things they would say and the things they would do or maybe you worked with somebody and they were that beloved employee at the workplace and they were there for a certain amount of time and then they left and before they left they would say some last words to everybody that you still remember maybe you had an experience where you went away and did a thing with a group of people and there was that moment where you got to reflect at the end of the thing and you remember the words that were spoken that evening as people would reflect on the experience last words matter and I can only imagine as Luke was taking notes and penning his gospel account that we have today as he drew closer to the end of the life of Jesus and he would record the words of Jesus and the moments and the things and the different places and spaces that he went if you pull up my map Luke we've been talking about this in this series the movement that began around the life of Christ was so dynamic and powerful it was a 500 and 63-hour walk from where Luke lived in Rome to Israel where the death and resurrection of Jesus happened. But the world began to change in real time and hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people began to believe in the name of Jesus as God's one and only son. And word makes its way to Rome and Luke wants to write an account and he wants to get every single thing right. So he travels to Israel. What does he do in Israel? In Israel, he talks to the people who are around Jesus. He talks to the disciples. He talks to Jesus' mother. He talks to Jesus' brother, to Jesus' family. He talks to Roman soldiers who would have been guarding the tomb or there the day that Jesus passed. And I can only imagine what those conversations were like, how sensitive they were and how careful Luke was as he was learning about the fact that the life of Christ ended in death that would one day become resurrection. And he records these things and he took tons of notes and he writes it in an account that we have today and in Luke 23 verse 23 we get to some of Jesus's last words it says when they came to the place called the skull they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left You'll notice something interesting here about the gospel accounts. Each and every time the gospel writers write about the crucifixion of Jesus, you only get about four words. They crucified him there. All of them breeze through it very quickly. And it's this little note in each one. Why would they do that? There's two reasons. 
Number one, this was something that was actually common and familiar in this day. They grew up in a far more brutal society than us. As a matter of fact, it was common in the time when Luke wrote this for whole roads to be lined with crucified people. They would put this up as a deterrent and there would be revolutions or failed revolutions and, and they would have all the people who tried to upset the Roman government crucified on two sides of the road coming in or out of town to tell everyone this is what happens when you mess with Rome. The other reason they're quick here is because this was a gross, disgusting process. This is the kind of thing that they hid their kids' eyes from as they walked by. This is the kind of thing that we see in a few words here, but it was an hours-long process. There were smells associated with these crucifixions that were associated with memories. And so each one of the gospel writers comes to the time when Jesus would die this death that was created by the Persians and, and, and given to the Greeks and then perfected by the Romans. And it would be such a nasty, vile, disgusting experience. They fly right by it. We know that Jesus is on a cross with criminals on either side of them. And here comes some of the last words, next verse. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And I got to imagine, Luke who has been learning all about the life of Jesus in real time. He's been taking notes. He's been interviewing people. I got to imagine he stopped there and he said, what? Hold on, hold on. We're talking Jesus, right? You guys were telling me about Jesus. I traveled all the way from Rome and we talked to that man and he was blind and Jesus was able to heal him and change his medical condition with a touch. That Jesus... We're talking about Jesus, right? The miraculous catch of fish. That was one of our first messages in this series. And Jesus commanded nature and nature obeyed him. Jesus, Luke is there and he's going, you guys, you guys, the son of God, the chosen one, this is how it ends for him. He's on a cross with criminals. He's king of the universe. I mean, I know enough about him to this point to know that he could have gotten himself off that cross. Oh, he could have, he could have just blinked his eyes and evaporated everybody. And yet he's up there saying the words, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They, the, the people talking to Luke would go, no, 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 no. It, it's worse than that. Because you read on and it says, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching and rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah and the chosen one, surely he could do it. Hey, how's it going, king of the world? His possessions would have been taken from him at the very beginning of this experience, like when somebody goes to jail today and they pull everything back out that he had and they're dividing it up as they watch him breathe his last breath. It's the greatest travesty and mockery that the universe has ever seen. And there hangs Jesus and he says the words, forgive them because they don't know what's happening right now. Can I be real with you guys? Can I, can I, can I like level with you? This makes me uncomfortable. Because 
I'm a firstborn, rule-following, do-right, follow Jesus, live my best, try and change the world with the time that he's given me. Uh, I believe right is right and wrong is wrong and good is good and evil is evil. And I believe that we are called to do right, but then I get to Jesus and he's hanging on a cross and he's saying, forgive these people when he has every right to just wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm a Jesus follower, which means if I follow Jesus, I could be led into a situation where I'm being abused, where I'm being offended against, and where I'm being harassed, and I am supposed to live like Jesus in that moment, meaning I'm not supposed to respond in kind. Can I tell you something that creates a deep tension in my soul? It almost feels like unmanly or un-American. And yet, it's a tension. It creates tension in me. Because when I look around our world today and I see men and women actually embody this call from Jesus to come and follow Him and they do it they end up looking like some of the strongest and most powerful people in the world. Do you know the story of Rachel Denhollander? She was the first female U.S. gymnastic athlete to come out and accuse Larry Nasser of what would become hundreds of cases of sexual abuse. And I dare you, honestly, the trigger warning in it is so high, I'm not going to read what she said at the trial. But when you hear her at the trial of the man who offended against her, she looks anything but weak. When I think of Anthony Thompson who was worshiping with his wife and eight friends at the Mother Emanuel Episcopal Church in Charleston when a shooter came in and killed his wife and eight friends. And 48 hours later, he shows up at the trial, having just lost his wife and friends. And he says to the murderer, I forgive you and I'm going to pray for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pray for you every single day. I am going to pray that you find Jesus the way that I found Jesus. I'm going to pray that you find forgiveness in Jesus and that you end up in heaven where you sent my wife. He looks anything but weak in that moment. And I'm torn because it's so counterintuitive. And yet when you see people do this, they look like some of the strongest people on earth. They certainly look stronger than the people who made them victims. I don't even think you can call them victims. And this tension, as I study the book of Luke, is something I learned that Jesus actually invites us into. See, what we see Jesus do in chapter 23 he calls us to in chapter 9. 
Side note, one thing I love about our Savior is everything He calls us to, He first did. He didn't sit in comfort and command from a distance. He walked on earth with its pain, its mud, its difficulty, its mourning, and its hurt. And He felt it too. And this tension is something He invites us into. Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24. These are some of the most powerful follow Jesus words in the New Testament. He's teaching and there's a group around Him. And He says, it says in verse 23, He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you hear what he says? Do you want to come after me? I love that because he's like, hey, you want to call yourself a Christian, a Jesus follower, a follower of the way, a disciple? Hey, I don't care what it's called. I care who you are and what you do. You want to come after me. You want to be with me. You want to be a Jesus person. Then here's what you do. You die to yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. Die to self is simply this. I'm not doing me anymore. It's not my wants, it's not my desires, it's not what I think is right, it's not me, I'm not in charge, I'm not king, I don't have a vision. I have removed myself from the throne of my life and placed Jesus there where he belongs. To take up your cross and follow Jesus means I'm literally going to just, you're dying, I'm dying. You didn't live a life for you, I'm not living a life for me. You know who carries a cross? It's people who have lost all their freedom. He says, you want to live. Do you want to know what truly living is? You deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Tell them, momentum, look at me. We have to do some important theological work today. You cannot leave here not understanding this, okay? It's not, it's, not too, it's not too hard to understand. It's just very, very important. Can I tell you something? There's a difference in believing the gospel and living the gospel. We can't afford to miss this as a church community. If we're trying to build something beautiful together, this, this is paramount. This is, this is ground level. We go nowhere until we get this. There's a difference in believing the gospel and moving to actually living the gospel. Now, believing the gospel is good, okay? It's all over the Bible. You got to believe in Jesus. You believe that he died a death on a cross that you deserve for your sins. And when you believe in him, throw your life on him, commit to him in baptism, you are free and forgiven forever. Okay? That is believing the gospel. That is important. We are pro-believe the gospel. But you have to understand that that is the starting line, not the finish line. When I have become to believe the gospel... I respond to the love of Jesus by living the gospel. That means living towards others as Jesus first lived towards me. When I live the gospel, I look at Jesus pouring himself out in self-sacrifice and then I serve him by sacrificing myself, my agenda, my plans, so I can love others, sacrifice, and serve them to glorify Christ with my life. This is it. 
And, and Jesus today, and trust me when I say this is an invitation, he is inviting you to move from being a fan to a follower, from an admirer who would check a box on a piece of paper to somebody who's going to live a dangerous life that will actually transform the world around them. And it happens by living. This is the entire New Testament. In every, but pick any New Testament letter from Paul. You know what he does? He says the gospel. Hey, this is Jesus, his life, the Holy Spirit, and for you. And then you know what he says? He goes, okay, now that you got that, go live like it. Hey, here's the gospel. Now treat your wife like Jesus treated you. Here's the gospel and live in the world like Jesus lived to you. Here's the gospel and when you go to work, you work like Jesus first worked for you. When I live the gospel, I don't go to work thinking about how many people I can get to serve me. I go thinking about how many people I can serve because of the way Christ emptied himself for me. When I live the gospel, I'm not content to build a safe little life and insulate myself from all the bad stuff and brokenness out there because when Jesus saw my bad stuff and brokenness, he moved towards me. When I live the gospel, I don't view what I have as mine. I view it as a gift given to me by Christ so I can serve the world and bless his name. There's a big difference. Do you get it? We had this, we had this land right, right inside our home. Just a few weeks ago, I'll tell you a story if you promise not to tell anybody. Our oldest is Lucy. She's 10. She, she's over there learning about Jesus and Momentum Kids right now. And I, I've told you guys this. She just got her butt kicked by fourth grade. It has been so hard for her. She, we, she was at one school. And then the pandemic, we homeschooled her. And, and we taught her all the wrong things. And, and then we sent her to fourth grade, which is a hard grade anyways. And, and, and she goes in there. And all these kids have a history together. And so friends back down to zero, uh, trying to get caught up in school and find out what she needs to do. And I mean, she got her bucket reading level. She's had to fight to get up to grade level. Just made it like this last week. And honestly, all the academic struggles don't bother me as much as how hard it's been for her to get some friends in her life. I would so much rather she comes home saying, my grades are terrible, but man, I met some great people. But she's been there and it's just physically painful to think of your kid, you know, in a school for six hours feeling alone. And so a few weeks back in her class, a new student shows up. And a young girl, also a fourth grader, had just migrated to America from Korea. And so she moves from Korea, lands in Lucy's class, speaks very little English, and she too is trying to find her way. Lucy goes to school the week that this young lady gets to class, she's at recess and she walks around behind the wall ball thing in the field to see a group of her classmates circled around the new girl throwing playground balls at her. And Lucy doesn't know what to do. She tries her best to get everyone to stop, redirect their attention, this whole thing. And so she can't. So she goes and gets the playground supervisor, tells her what's going on, they come, they help the girl, the thing goes. 
they all go back to class and in front of the class a student begins to tell everyone how Lucy's the tattletale who ruined everybody's fun at recess. Whole thing blows up one step forward, four more steps back when it comes to having good friends at the school. Now, if this world is all there is, and we believe as a family, our job is to get as far as we can as a family, the heck with everybody else, I just want you to be okay and safe and happy, then that was a huge loss that day. It was a terrible event and she shouldn't have done that. But if we believe Jesus is the king of the universe who came down, gave his life up for us so we can live, and he says, I want you to now go into the world and do the same thing, then Lucy's experience right there is a huge kingdom of God. Deny yourself, follow Jesus, home run. Now, yeah, thank you. Now, if you were watching that event unfold, the young migrant student surrounded by kids laughing at her and throwing playground balls, and you were up on Otay Lakes Road where you can see down into recess through the little gate, and you see Lucy see what's happening, what do you want her to do? Would you like her to safely insulate herself, play it safe, laugh along with the kids, maybe not throw a ball, but not create a stir? Or do you want her to help? Do you want her to hide or to help? We all know the answer is help. You get it for her, but do you get it for you? Do you get that you too are called to live a completely different kind of life? Do you get that you too are called into the world and its problems and concerns and you're called to be different? We're not playing that game anymore. Do you get that you are not simply called to believe the gospel, but to roll up your sleeves and live it? Because that's what truly matters. It is. So Jesus continues and he says these words okay he says whoever wants to save their life this is him elaborating whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but to lose or forfeit their very self and this is why I say this is an invitation because Jesus essentially says, hey, your cross, denying yourself, following me, that's what truly living is. Do you know what happens when you live for self? You start dying before you're even dead. You, when, you, when you live a life by yourself, for yourself, concerned about self, your life shrinks to the confines of your selfishness, 
I, I've used this before. We got the fishbowl. I've brought in fish before to try and show this, but I didn't want to have another innocent fish give up his life for a message. And so I just did the picture this time. But when you live a life by yourself, for yourself, doing self things to insulate yourself from all the bad and make yourself as happy as possible, you end up living like this fish. He thinks he's got the whole world. He's comfortable. Heck, he might even have everything just how he likes it. But he has no idea how small his life really is. That's where you end up when it's a life based on self. Jesus loves you too much to let you settle for that. He wants you to live. He wants you to be fully alive. That, my friends, is not just found in believing but living as He has called us to live. He goes, what good is it? What good is it to win at the game of self, get to the end, and find out you were playing the wrong game the whole time? What good is it to get to the very end and realize you were living in the fishbowl the entire time you thought you had everything, but you had really just settled for such a small version of what you were made for. So here we go. Band, you guys could come up. We'll close with the song. But I want to talk about what we do with this. You're like, bro, this is heavy. Like, I'm, we're thinking about lunch later, and I've got an assignment due on Monday, and a life to live, and like, good golly, like, I, hey, I'm for you, but like, hang on, like, how do, we, how do we do this? You know how you do this? Daily. I'll draw your attention to one tiny little word which might be the most important word in this verse. Let me read 23 and 24 again. He said, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you know what you do? You die to self daily every day my, not my will but yours be done every day God here's my hands here's my eyes here's my mouth here's my heart here's my life here's my steps here's my place every single day we embrace the call to die to self and to live for Christ and through that we find out what truly living is that's our heart that's our hope you know the map this is the last week so I'm going to show you this map one last time I've shown it like 50 times when you were looking at the map did you ever wonder how a group of about 12 Christians transformed the entire world did you ever wonder like how did Luke hear a month-long a month journey away? How did he hear about the life of Jesus so much, though, that he became a follower? 
How did 12 turn to 1,000, that turned to 3,000, that turned to 100,000, that turned to several million, that upset the entire Roman Empire? Rome fell and Jesus remains. You know how that happened? Daily. Daily those believers gave up their lives so others could live. Daily they saw needs that they met them. Daily they welcomed the poor, widows, orphans, and those with no home or family. Daily they decided they were going to live for something bigger than themselves. Daily they said, Lord, it's not about me. It is all about you. And through them, the world was changed. Guys, I believe that could still happen today. If each of us it's willing to follow him daily. Would you stand? We'll sing one last song together.